Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Sandy and this is my co-host Stephanie. Hey everyone. So we have a lot to unfold in today's episode, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, It was a very exhausting topic to put together, but a very important one in my opinion. So today we will be talking about the death penalty. Is it a necessary option to have or should we abolish it altogether? So Steph and I have had numerous conversations over the years about the death penalty and our stance on it, and I feel like we have always agreed that we were on the fence about whether we agreed with it or not, but that we generally lean towards one side of the spectrum, which was against the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Would you agree on that one? Yeah, I went back and forth a lot, but lately, I'm definitely (laughs) leaning against it. Okay. Um. But I was always so frustrated with myself whenever someone would ask my opinion on the death penalty um, and I couldn't give them a definitive answer. So I decided that with the recent federal executions that took place these past couple months, now would be the perfect time that I explore deeper into this topic and go on my own journey to figure out how I really feel about the death penalty. So Steph kind of kicked us off with this topic with our last episode on the execution of Cameron Todd Willingham, Mm -hmm. who actually most likely ended up being innocent and wrongfully put to death. Um, If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that first because I will be using that as an example for a talking point. Uh, But overall, I'm going to be talking about the history of capital punishment, the arguments for and against it analyzing a few death penalty cases, and then our final opinions. So I really did my best to be like as unbiased as possible. I really wanted to look at both sides and not make any decisions on whether or not, like how I feel ahead of time, Mm -hmm. because I really wanted to help myself figure out exactly how I feel by looking at both sides as if they were both right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So I got my sources from a ton of different places. I read so many articles and books. Um, I'm not including all of them because I didn't take from all of them. Um, But I did get information from a book called Dead Man Walking by Sister Helen Prejean. Two articles from findlaw.com, Wikipedia, an article called On Death Row by Amanda Devlin. The Death Penalty Information Center website, an article on the advantages and disadvantages of capital punishment by Natalie Rogoli, an article in the Baltimore Sun by Gregory Kane, a website called wesleylow.com, classkids.org by Mark Class, and an article on soapboxy.com by Paul Goodman. So the history of capital punishment. Um, So the history of the death penalty is a very long and extensive and complicated one. So I'm going to summarize it as quick as I can for purposes of not being boring. Mm -hmm. I don't want our episode to get boring, but I wanted to give a quick background on it. So capital punishment has been around for thousands of years and is practiced in a handful of countries. But today we will be focusing on just the United States. So death penalty laws in the U.S. began in the 17th century, where colonies had a variety of offenses that were punishable by death, which included stealing, trading with Native Americans, and hitting your parents. Mm. And there was a lot more. There was a ton of like really frivolous things that you could be put to death mm-hmm. in the 17th century. So <laughs> thank God we're not in that <laughs> Uh, Eventually, some states began using death penalties for only murder cases or cases of treason, and laws regarding capital punishment changed from a mandatory sentence for certain crimes to a discretionary sentence instead. 
but generally most states had some form of capital punishment laws until about the 1950s when activists started to push for abolishing it and public support of the death penalty began to decline. The use of lynchings of enslaved people as a form of capital punishment for a wide variety of accused and usually not proven crimes, along with the Jim Crow era, would have a profound and lasting effect on the death penalty. But we'll get into more details about that later in the story. In the 1960s, many states started to abolish the death penalty and a nationwide movement was formed to get rid of capital punishment altogether. In 1967, after the execution of Luis Jose Monge, activists took the issue up to the Supreme Court and there was an unofficial moratorium on the death penalty. So states voluntarily decided to halt executions while the Supreme Court reviewed the case. Finally, in 1972, the Supreme Court voted in favor to end the death penalty after reviewing the matter of Furman v. Georgia. The Furman case was actually a combination of three separate death penalty cases, where three black men had been sentenced to death, one for murdering a white man and the other two for raping white women. The Supreme Court decided that there was definitely question that racial bias played a role in the men being sentenced to die and that the death penalty was arbitrary and discriminatory. This would mean a violation of the Eighth Amendment in the Constitution of Cruel and Unusual Punishment. This decision committed 629 death row inmates to life in prison instead. But this win wouldn't last long, and just four years later, the court reversed this decision. The Supreme Court decided to allow states to reinstate capital punishment if they wanted, as long as they corrected the problems that had led to the arbitrary and discriminatory issues. This ultimately led some states to reintroduce the death penalty with some reforms, such as including automatic appeals and efforts to reduce sentencing disparities. And I want to add big air quotes around the word effort because sentencing disparities definitely still exist. Hmm. I also want to add that we have seen in many cases that the appeals process for death penalty cases is bullshit (laughs) and doesn't really work like it's intended to. As of today, 28 states still have the death penalty, and the U.S. is one of only 56 countries in the world to have the death penalty today, and I want to add that we're one of the only westernized democracy-type countries that have the death penalty. So we are in the minority for capital punishments when three-fourths of the world have already abolished it. Since the 1970s, over 1,500 people have been executed in the United States, and we'll look into the exact statistics of those people a little later. Since the reinstatement of the death penalty, other changes have been made to requirements of sentencing, which include that you can't execute someone who is mentally impaired, a juvenile offender, and when a death has not occurred. The Supreme Court had decided that all these situations would be cruel and unusual punishment if sentenced to death. The primary means of execution in the U.S. have been hanging, electrocution, the gas chamber, firing squad, and lethal injection. The Supreme Court has never found a method of execution to be unconstitutional, though some methods have been declared unconstitutional by state courts. In general, though, since the 1970s, lethal injection has been the most used method of death. Before Trump left office, he ordered the federal execution of 13 people in just six months. Prior to this, only three federal executions had taken place since 1988, with the last being in 2003. This amount of federal executions in a single year had not happened since the 1800s. That's crazy. Yeah. 
All of these executions took place during a global pandemic, with at least two of the inmates set to be executed testing positive for COVID-19, uh-huh, right before their death, um, and putting all the workers at risk of the virus. Many of those executions were met with opposition and fierce activism spreading through social media asking to stop them, but none of them were granted a stay that wasn't overturned. So like I said earlier, I really tried my best to look at the pros and cons of the death penalty without um, having some bias going into it. So I tried to research different places that had like unbiased information, but that quickly proved to be a difficult goal. Just like in politics where we have two extreme sides, the debate of capital punishment is definitely not immune to the two radical opinions. Some of the first articles that popped up in my search already had extreme views where one said all judges are inherently racist and another saying that racism doesn't exist in the criminal justice system. Mm, I know it was so it was very frustrating. Um, So I did my best to filter out those type of articles and get down to the real statistics and real life examples. Also, a lot of talking points can be construed to fit either side of the opinion and also sometimes conflict with each other. So I will also include those examples and will present them in both the pro and anti-death penalty sides. And before we get started, I also want to make a statement that just because I included a certain argument in this section or in either section really, um, doesn't mean that I personally agree with it. I'm just including the arguments made on both sides of the death penalty debate so that you can come to your own conclusions. But at the end, I will state my own opinions and compare the two arguments and state why I think certain arguments are wrong. Fair. Okay, thanks. So pros or in favor of the death penalty. The first argument is that capital punishment is a way to provide justice for victims and their families. And this is usually the first issue that comes up when presented with this topic, right? Yeah. The notion of what would you want if someone you loved was brutally murdered. And this is something that I have thought of often when trying to formulate my own opinion on the death penalty. And as morbid as it is, I try to put myself in the victim's family's shoes. Um, If someone tortured and killed one of my kids, would killing their murderer bring me peace or satisfy any need for revenge? Um, Or if someone killed me, would I want my own family to seek justice in a way of killing the perpetrator? So there's this concept of an eye for an eye, or if you disregard human life and take away from someone else, then you deserve to lose your own human rights. And when it comes to your own emotions, no one can tell you how you should or should not feel when someone you love is murdered. Uh, The grief process is different for everyone, and some might argue that a victim's family might only be able to get closure once a murderer is executed. And if their loved one doesn't get to live their life anymore, then the killer shouldn't either. As an example, Frederick Romano discussed in an article about his family's journey with the death penalty. In 1987, Romano's sister was beaten, tortured, and mutilated. The murderer also killed two other women. Romano describes how the murder left them with a lot of emotional problems. His parents had to be put on a lot of medication just to try to feel normal again. The depression and suffering from losing their daughter never ends. But as they awaited the murderer, Stephen Howard Oaken, to be executed, death penalty opponents tried to fight for him to live. But Romano points out, how is it justice if our own tax dollars are paying for him to live, eat and sleep, and maybe even get a college education, something that his sister wasn't able to complete because her life was cut short? 
Romano also states that it's not even about closure for him and it's not even revenge. It's just justice. His wife, Vicky Romano, says revenge would be going out and killing one of the murderer's family members. The death penalty isn't revenge, it's the law. As another example, Arkansas State Representative Rebecca Petty describes the death penalty as helping to close a chapter in the victim's lives. Petty argues that closure is not the word to use necessarily because you can never forget about the murdered loved one, but you can close the chapter on court hearings and appeals and keeping the murderer alive. It's the closing of the chapter that can help a family in their grief process. In 1999, Petty's 12-year-old daughter was kidnapped, raped, and strangled by her uncle. The uncle was sentenced to death but has appealed it and his execution date is still unscheduled. As a result, Petty entered politics and has advocated for victims' rights. So when thinking about this, I mean, I feel bad because I understand there's a murderer, right? And if you see these people advocating for them on social media and on the news or whatever, that they deserve to live and they're human and, you know, we don't want them to die. We, I can, I can see how a family member would be really hurt by that and really, you know, this is what the justice system gave him. They gave him the death penalty. Why are these people fighting for him to live when they've killed someone that I love dearly? So I understand mm-hmm. that aspect. I don't know the answer for that. I, it, it's hard never being in that position yeah. to really have an opinion. So I, like you're going over this and in my head I'm like, God, these are really good points, right? Yeah. Because it's hard to sit back and say, well, I don't believe or I don't agree in the death penalty. And then also think about, well, my hard-earned money is going to mm-hmm. keep someone alive who's done this really, really horrible thing. Right. And then on top of that, you know, right, like the activism and like wanting to keep people alive. And it's like, well, like where was the outrage when my daughter was mm-hmm. killed or when my relative was killed? I get that. But I just think as hard as it is, it's a little it's it's like two separate things. Like mm-hmm. no one is saying, which is kind of like the all lives ver- versus black lives right. matter mm-hmm. argument is no one is saying that because we're advocating or wanting to keep this person alive, mm-hmm. that your daughter's life or your relative's life, whoever was murdered or killed isn't important. Isn't important. It's it's hard. It's it hard is. to make that distinction when you're in those shoes and you you're suffering so much and you know you're having to live with the fact that like your relative or your daughter or your son or whoever Mm -hmm. their life was cut short because Mm -hmm. of this person and now this person gets to live out their days but they're you also have to remember that the life quote unquote that they have isn't really a life right like that life in prison isn't life free right that that life in prison is really really difficult Mm -hmm. and that even if they are getting some sort of education while they're in there they're never really going to be able to make use of it so it's it's hard because it's you're so well they're still alive and they're breathing and they're kicking and they're finding some joy probably Mm and in every day so that's hard but i think that the there's a difference in people who are advocating for abolishing the death penalty Mm -hmm. and saying that this was just never supposed to be a thing like we never should have had this in the first place because of all of these other things right because the same people who are suffering because they're they're victims Mm -hmm. could also be in a place where someone in their family might also be wrongfully convicted or who might do something and get into like a bad place Mm -hmm. and then suddenly they're on the other side and I'm sure that they would also not want their family member to have to go 
through being executed by the state mm-hmm. and would want to find something else and would understand maybe what it's like to be on the other side. So that's it's just all really hard and it's really, yeah. really complicated. But I think that the bigger picture is people who are wanting to abolish the death penalty are doing so because they never believe that this should have been an option to be an with. option. That makes sense. So the second argument is that the death penalty keeps society safe. It is argued that someone who is able to commit these types of crimes cannot be rehabilitated, and if they are not put to death, then they continue to be a danger to other innocent people. And this is whether they kill someone else in prison because they have nothing else to lose if they are stuck there for life anyway, or if they escape prison and kill someone again. So the first example would be convicted killer Joseph Lee Druce. While serving a life sentence, he murdered another inmate, a Catholic priest convicted of molesting children. I think that's what they refer to as jailhouse justice. Justice. Mm-hmm. Not that that's any better, but uh, so Drews goes to trial again for killing the other prisoner and he's sentenced to life in prison again, which really doesn't change anything to his original sentence or make any difference. Right. So in this type of situation, there's nothing to deter him from continuing to kill more inmates because he'll be there for life anyway. And there's no threat of execution. So I found a pro-death penalty website that had a list of some convicted murderers who were either paroled or escaped and went on to kill again. And it was a pretty long list. Surprisingly, I didn't think it would be as long as it was. Um, So I chose just two examples at random. Um, So we have Edward Kennedy, a Florida man who killed a motel clerk and was sentenced to life. He escaped prison in 1981 and killed a policeman and a male civilian soon after the prison break. He was executed for those murders in 1992. Then we have Randy Greenewald, our convicted killer serving life in an Arizona prison. In 1978, he escaped from prison. He then went on a murdering spree and murdered a family of four, a newlywed couple, and two gang members. Escape is something that definitely has happened, and it's very reminiscent of Ted Bundy's famous escape Mm -hmm. and continued killings. So pro-death penalty advocates say that this can be avoided if the murderers are put to death instead. But can I just say that even if someone is set to be executed, Mm -hmm. it takes a really long time for people to be executed. Yeah, we'll get into that. Even they still, it's not like they get charged with, you know, convicted and then set to be executed and then in a month or a week or whatever yeah they're i mean it's years they, they could still have the same chances of escaping that's part of their argument though is that not only do they want the death penalty on the table but they want it to be acted out more swiftly and faster that's so dangerous it's a slippery slope a very slippery definitely slope. some of these men were sentenced to life in prison the fact that they had nothing to lose and that they just couldn't give them any other option as punishment they're just going to keep killing so that one guy that killed the priest he just he kept killing actually (laughs) (laughs) um so with inmates i mean it does create a dangerous environment Mm -hmm. not only for the other prisoners but for the guards as well because guards have been killed by prison inmates or injured gravely um and if someone doesn't have anything else i mean this guy killed and he just got the exact same sentence and he just went about his day i wonder what um what like the percentages or what the statistics look like for what's that jail that's like the safest jail in the world you know what i'm talking about oh, there was the like one in another country yeah 
and it looks nice and they it looks and like more of like a home yeah, and they're trying to like rehabilitate like switzerland or yes. sweden or something like yes. that like i wonder what the rates there are are there because i'm sure they have murderers and serial killers out there too so i wonder what it looked like are people escaping or is it a product like are we a product of the environment that prisoners are in mm-hmm. that could be it too have you seen 60 days in no, you've told me oh about it on gosh. Netflix, right? It's so I good. I need to watch it. I've been taking a, a bit of a true crime break. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if this is necessarily considered true crime. I mean, I guess they're inmates. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really interesting because you see <clears throat> these civilians, right, going into the jail pretending to be inmates. A lot of them fall into mm-hmm. the inmate persona. I mean, they're supposed to act like they're inmates, but they naturally like become them. And some of them you know, in their interviews, they're crying and they're like, I've become an inmate, yeah. like because of where I am, because of how the guards treat me, because mm-hmm. of, you know, trying to watch my back from the other inmates, like I've become one of them. In one season, one guy like punched another kid because he wasn't following gang guidelines mm-hmm. necessarily and he had to put him in his place. Um, another girl like was just losing her mind yelling at this girl like I thought they were going to get into a fight. It, it it's, it's just interesting to see that they are normal people. Mm-hmm. They've never it's some of them experiment. some of them have committed crimes before that go in, but some of them had never committed a crime. Some of them are like, "Oh, I think they should have harsher punishments. I think that the jail should be harder." And they get yeah. in and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is extremely hard." And right. they become that. Yeah. So you're right. I think it is you do become a product. It's, of weird it's environment. San- Sanford, right? Sanford prison yes. experiment. Mm-hmm. I feel like the United States has become the experiment, mm-hmm. right? Like I think that the prison system, don't get me wrong, I think people need to be punished and mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe that everyone can be rehabilitated. So I understand that we need to have a prison system, but I do think that there are other prison systems out there in the world mm-hmm. who might have figured it out a little bit better than we have. And mm-hmm. I think that when you go in, you definitely become a product of the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. And people who may have been rehabilitated going into this place may just lose all yeah. chances of being rehabilitated because at that point it becomes survival. Yeah. And not, I just want to become a better person and like live out my sentence and try to, to work on myself. I think there are people who manage to do that, mm-hmm. but I think that they've had to do really neg- like horrible things probably along the way to yes. get to the place that they're in Yeah, where they haven't been killed. You know, most people will kind of suffer some sort of sexual abuse while they're in prison. Right. So it's just, it's really hard. It's hard to say that, you know, it could be any dip that it couldn't be any different because mm-hmm. I think it can be. Mm-hmm. A third argument that correlates with the safety of society is that life in prison does not always mean life in prison. Some argue that while serving life without parole, there have been instances where convicted killers did get parole. Or if life without parole is the worst sentencing, then other murder convictions could have discretion to be more lenient based on the case. So the list that I mentioned earlier had many examples of murderers who were paroled early and went on to murder again. As an example, in 1968, Jimmy Lee Gray murdered his 16-year-old girlfriend. After only serving seven years of his 20-year prison sentence in Arizona, he was paroled. Soon after, he raped and murdered a three-year-old little girl. Gray's own mother sent a letter to the governor and the Mississippi Supreme Court to say that her son deserved to die for what he did. 
At Gray's execution, the executioner showed up drunk and botched his gas chamber execution, leaving Gray to die in severe pain for eight minutes as he banged his head against a metal pole. Oh, my God. It was awful. Another example would be James Moore. In 1962, Moore raped and strangled 14-year-old Pamela Moss. But her parents decided to spare Moore the death penalty on the condition that he plead guilty and be sentenced to life in prison without parole. However, 20 years later, a change in sentencing laws in the state allowed Moore to actually be eligible for parole every two years. Mm. So every two years, he's allowed to apply again to be paroled. And this has gone on every two years since 1982. The last time being in 2019, which means he has Mm -hmm. the ability to try again this year. Moore has been consistently denied parole, and there doesn't seem to be any indication that he ever will be granted release. But the poor parents of the victim have had to live with the possibility of his release every two years for decades. And probably having to like show up to the parole Uh hearing, right? To like plead their case. That's exactly what's happened. And it's all because they decided to spare him the death penalty. So again, the argument is that situations like this would be altogether avoided if the murderers are put to death and we no longer have to worry about them and the danger they could impose on society and even on the prison guards watching over them. The fourth argument is that the death penalty is supposed to be a deterrent for people to not commit such heinous crimes. Now, this has been the hardest to find evidence for to prove correct. Um, There was one study that I found that all articles kept bringing up to prove their point of capital punishment being a deterrence. So I looked at the study and read through all of it. And I'll be honest, I didn't understand much of it (laughs) at all. So the summary was written by Samuel Candler Dobbs, a professor of economics and law. And his analysis was that having the death penalty deters criminals from committing worse crimes, and it's reduced the amount of murders by 18 with each execution that occurs. He also goes on to say most studies show the opposite, but he says that their comparisons weren't done correctly and they didn't take certain things into account. So it was weird. I was reading through it and they'll say like, okay, this study said that there was no deterrence, but they didn't take into account the different types of counties has different types of people. It was weird. He was trying to debunk all the other studies that were saying like there's no deterrence. And he's saying that they weren't doing the statistics correctly. The comparisons weren't correct. And so his comparisons, he really looked at it from like an economics point of view. Like the whole report looked like an economics report, not a law report, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, from everything that I've seen. And it was weird because I didn't understand his... Um, his analysis, I, I couldn't understand his comparison. I it, just yeah. did not. I read it over and over again, and I couldn't understand how he was coming up with this. But in the end, he said, for every execution that occurs, it deters 18 murders. But I don't understand how. That would be hard to like figure out. Like, yeah. How do you, how can, would you go and ask the murder, like, hey, were you deterred? Because. I don't know. He was looking at numbers. He was looking at numbers comparatively from states that have it and states that don't. But what I couldn't understand is what was the guidelines for the comparisons? Because he kept saying that all other studies were doing wrong comparisons and they weren't taking things into account. And so he was taking them into account. But I didn't understand what those (laughs) things were. Yeah. 
So take what you will out of that study. Um, but the argument is that criminals might think twice about their actions, knowing that there's a possibility they could be executed for their crimes. I don't know. I'll talk about <laughs> I don't my opposing arguments with that on the, I don't know about the that. next section. <laughs> So a fifth argument is that capital punishment can help maintain prison populations at more manageable levels. If murderers of heinous crimes are unable to be rehabilitated and are no longer able to contribute to society anymore, then the argument is that if we put these people to death, then it will be easier to run prisons with less people, and we can focus on more programs to help rehabilitate them and prepare them to re-enter society. So I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> I, and this is the thing, though, like there are states that have the death penalty and their prisons aren't any less crowded than the prisons from states that don't have the death penalty. Because I think that this points to a bigger problem, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. like what people are actually in there for that shouldn't be in there for. Correct. So I, I don't think that taking i don't think either way i don't think taking it away or leaving it is going to solve the problem of overcrowding in prisons that's a much that's a bigger issue issue. and that issue is an issue that people just don't seem to want to fix Mm -hmm. a sixth argument is that the death penalty can be used as a tool to negotiate with murderers a good example of this is a case that steph and i are actually very familiar with it happened in our own hometown and we were actually a part of the vigil Mm-hmm. Do you remember Chelsea this? King. In 2009 and 2010, John Gardner raped and murdered two girls in San Diego. The first victim was a 14-year-old named Amber Dubois who disappeared while walking to school. The second victim was Chelsea King, a 17-year-old who was murdered while she was out on a run. So Gardner was arrested for the murder of Chelsea King and was mm-hmm. told that he would face the death penalty. He then told the authorities that if they took the death penalty off of the table, he would tell them where the body of Amber Dubois was. That was so crazy because no one knew that he was even, even connected to with Amber. her. They had no idea. Mm-mm. That that I, it seemed like that thought didn't even cross their mind. They no. thought it was completely unrelated, completely separate. Yeah, and it happened like a year apart too. Right. That's a crazy story. That's such an, I mean, interesting. It's interesting the way it all played out Mm -hmm. because Amber happened and then there was another lady who had been jogging the same trail as Chelsea, who also was confronted by him. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of like that missing link. And then Chelsea happens Mm -hmm. and then he's like, okay, I can, I'll tell you. It's just, it's such an interesting story how it all happened. So with that, I mean, it's obvious that the law enforcement would never have found Amber's body otherwise. I mean, maybe eventually, but like you said, there's probably no way that they would have made the connections had the death penalty not been brought up and had Gardner not said, hey, I'll give you this information if you take that off. So it was a bargaining chip in that instance. Um, There have been plenty of cases where the death penalty was used as a tool to get more information out of someone in order to bring some finality and answers to a victim's family. So to summarize... The six main arguments in favor of capital punishment is justice for the victims and their families, a guaranteed way to keep society safe from these types of murderers, to avoid the chance that a convicted killer is paroled or given clemency even when sentenced to life without parole, that it's a deterrent to reduce crime, it can help reduce the prison population, and finally, it can be used as a bargaining tool to get more information out of suspects. And apart from those main arguments, a lot of articles talked about how everything used on the other side of the argument are false. Many pro-death penalty advocates say that the abolitionists have the same cliche arguments that are not true, such as, but not limited to, 
racism not existing in the criminal justice system, and that innocent people have never been executed, which I'm about to get into. Um, But I think it's important to note that the divide between the two groups can be very politically charged. And as I dug deeper into the topic, it seemed to turn into a leftist versus conservative issue. And I think that is just unavoidable at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next, cons and in favor of abolishing the death penalty. So before we get into the list of arguments for this side, I want to get the religion aspect out of the way first. And the reason I didn't want to include this as a main argument is because not everyone has the same religion and not everyone is even religious at all. But there has been a big push from religious leaders to abolish the death penalty because they don't believe it's anyone's right to kill someone for any reason and we need to show forgiveness and compassion. However, I have also seen people use the Bible to argue in favor of capital punishment because there are multiple verses discussing concepts like an eye for an eye. So with that, I'm scrapping the Bible arguments altogether for this side. Either side, actually, because the other side has used the Bible to show their stance on it. Um, So no Bible verses for either pros or cons, okay? (laughs) Um, So for this episode, I did read the book called Dead Man Walking by Sister Helen Prejean. And at first, I was skeptical about reading it because I was worried that it was only going to cover the religious aspects of the death penalty argument since it's about a Catholic nun's journey with befriending death row inmates. But it actually had a lot of good information regarding issues with the criminal justice system and poverty and morality. So I will be including those type of arguments. So for the first argument for abolishing the death penalty, and I think this is the biggest one for me, is the chance of an innocent person being executed. There are major flaws in the criminal justice system that unless we can perfect it, I don't see how we can in good faith keep executing people, especially cases where the evidence is circumstantial. And there has been people put to death for circumstantial evidence. There have also been instances where prosecutors knowingly withheld exculpatory information, where false evidence was used against defendants, or defendants being coerced into entering a guilty plea or false confession. These things happen, and unfortunately, they happen on death penalty cases as well. And for those of you who forgot what exculpatory evidence is, we talked about it in a past episode, um, but it's basically evidence that can kind of prove innocence of the other person. And so sometimes the prosecutors hold that information, they withhold it, because obviously it doesn't go in favor of what they're trying to say. And so the defendant can claim that there's exculpatory evidence that they're withholding, and then they can request to bring that information to light because it may be able to prove their innocence. Yes, and then they can file Brady violations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Historically, innocent people have always been wrongfully executed. Salem witch trials, for one example. Socrates was executed for basically being really smart. (laughs) I read dozens of articles that tried to state that abolitionists' argument of modern-day wrongful convicted people being executed is false and that there has never been evidence to prove that. Well, I think that statement is actually false, and here are just a couple of examples of that happening. Claude Jones was executed in 2000 for the murder of a liquor store worker. The only evidence prosecutors had against Jones was a strand of hair on the victim's body that they believed to be Jones's, which led to his conviction. After his execution, DNA evidence proved that it was, in fact, not Jones's hair. Mm. And that was the only thing they had against him anyway. In 1992, Johnny Frank Garrett was executed for allegedly raping and killing a 76-year-old nun, sister Tadea Benz. 
12 years later, Linicio Perez Rueda was found guilty of a rape and murder of an elderly woman, which had occurred around the same time as Sister Benz's murder. Rueda would later confess that he was the actual murderer to both crimes. However, Johnny Franker was already executed by that time. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And then we have Cameron Todd Willingham, Yay. the man whose story stuff just covered in our last episode. In 2004, he was executed for allegedly setting a fire in his home, which killed his three young children. However, after his death, a reexamination of the case proved that the forensic science used to prosecute him was false, and he, in fact, did not cause the fire. Which, now that you've already done the story, we know that that evidence had already existed prior to his execution. And I think that's what makes everything more frustrating. Yeah, the science behind it had already been debunked Mm -hmm. at the time that they presented it as evidence, which it wasn't. Yeah. So let's look at some statistics. Uh, Since 1973, almost 175 people have been exonerated from death row, some of them by actual DNA evidence, and with more than half of those exonerees being black. And this isn't even including the other hundreds of people serving life for other terms that were exonerated as well. The Innocence Project states that 375 people in the U.S. have been exonerated through DNA evidence alone. And there have been many more exonerated after finding faults in the investigation and trial, or even just finding the actual perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And you can argue that that is what the appeal process is for, to make sure innocent people don't stay in prison or be executed. But from all the cases we have seen, I think it's safe to say that the appeals process is terrible. It's long, it's difficult, and most of the time they dismiss the case without even really looking at the evidence. It is estimated that at least 4 to 5% of death row inmates are innocent, but it could be more. And when you're looking at thousands of people on death row, that 5% actually comes out to a staggering number. And the part where pro-death penalty activists say that it can be used as a bargaining chip, I understand, but it can also go very wrong. There have been many criminals who murdered someone, and the investigators tell them they have to give up accomplices or they face the death penalty. So what happens? They run the risk of the person giving false accomplices. Innocent people have gone to prison because someone named them in order to avoid the death penalty themselves. The second argument is that the death penalty is not an actual deterrent to crime, and 88% of criminologists believe this. Statistically, states without the death penalty have the same amount of crime as states with the death penalty. Also, it's difficult to believe that when a person is in the act of committing a murder, they're not going to be in the right state of mind to reflect and think about whether or not their state has a death penalty to decide whether or not they will go through with the murder. If someone is going to murder someone, they're going to do it regardless of what the they're laws are in that state. considering what the, yeah. So I listened to a podcast episode and there was lawyers on there that had said, Assuming certain punishments are deterrents would mean believing that all the criminals would know all the laws and possible sentencing for each crime, which I definitely don't know any of them for my state. Right. I know that stealing is bad, drugs are bad, assault Mm -hmm. is bad, rape is bad, and murder is bad, but I have no idea the amount of sentencing that is typical for any of those crimes. Right. Also, when it comes to the death penalty specifically... Even within the states that do have it, it still can vary by county. Mm -hmm. So there are DAs that refuse to prosecute with the death penalty on the table, even though the state allows it. And some states that do technically have capital punishment might have a moratorium in place so that they aren't actually carrying out those sentences. 
So we talk about how the criminal justice system is supposed to be fair to everyone, but how is it fair if only some counties in this country will consider the death penalty and others won't? Your sentencing basically comes down to the geographic location of where you commit the crime, which sounds very odd to me personally. So out of the over 2,500 death row inmates, they're only there because of where the crime happened, not because they're the worst 2,500 crimes in this country. It just came down to location. Mm -hmm. So with this in mind, I think in terms of a fair criminal justice system, it should be all or nothing. Either everyone has the possibility of the death penalty or no one does at all. In Sister Helen Pergine's book, Dead Man Walking, the execution of Pat Saunier was extensively covered in the media and it triggered a copycat killer. So it was obvious to her that the death penalty played no part in deterring crime. In 1962, the United Nations released a report on capital punishment and they stated, All the information available appears to confirm that such removal of the death penalty has in fact never been followed by a notable rise in the incident of the crime no longer punishable by death. So basically said, looking at all the states that once had the death penalty, once it's been removed, it's not like there's a spike in murders. Mm. Because no one is considering right. the death penalty when they're about to murder someone. Mm -hmm. So the third argument are actually two arguments I put together. But it's that the death penalty is requiring someone to kill another person. And it may perpetuate a revenge ideal and exemplify fighting violence with violence. So let's start with the executioner. In modern times, there really isn't just one executioner like you see in movies from the past. It's a process that requires a collective effort. S. Frank Thompson, a superintendent of the Oregon State Penitentiary, talked about how his job required him to have a hand in executions, and on a moral ground, it made him realize that he either had to honor life or not. Sister Helen's book discussed the people involved in Sonia's execution. She talked about the electrician in charge of preparing the electric chair and how some electricians refused money for it, or they only had a verbal agreement on payment and nothing was ever in writing. Sister Helen concluded that this is to avoid the electrician feeling as though it was a, quote, death for hire. Mm -hmm. Those that were executed by firing squad commonly had one shooter with blanks in their gun. That way, no one could know for sure that they were responsible for the inmate's death. Those that are executed by lethal injection often have multiple people strapping them down, and each step of the process is completed by a different person. Again, so that not all all of the responsibility of the death is put on one person. So by putting these measures in place, it makes me feel like we know deep down that there's an issue with the government killing people. No one wants full responsibility of killing the inmate, understandably, but doesn't that prove that there's a moral issue with it? Right. The second half of the argument is that we are perpetuating violence and revenge. We tell people killing is bad, but then the government does it. It reminds me of an adult saying, do as I say, not as I not do. Not as I do. Mm -hmm. Don't kill anyone, but if you do, then I'll kill you. But only the government can kill for justice, not you. It can be seen as hypocritical for the government to tell the public not to kill when they themselves legalize it as a form of punishment. Archbishop Desmond Tutu is a human rights activist who worked with Nelson Mandela to end apartheid in South Africa. In regards to capital punishment, he states, Legalized government violence against its citizens serves only to legitimize and perpetuate violence. 
Killing those who kill is not the way to show that murder is wrong. We show this by forgiving. The third argument is that it's unclear how constitutional it really is. As I mentioned before, the Supreme Court had ruled capital punishment as unconstitutional and violating the Eighth Amendment of cruel and unusual punishment. Although that was overturned with promises of change, it's been said to still be arbitrary, the criminal justice system can be unreliable, and the length that someone stays on death row is usually decades. What may be legal doesn't always mean it's moral. Which leads me to my fourth argument, that many see the death penalty as morally wrong. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory on its own. Part of that morality and constitutionality, though, is the act of the execution itself. As of today, each state has its own authorized methods of execution, which includes lethal injection, electrocution, gas chamber, hanging, and firing squad. Most of these methods have been ruled unconstitutional by majority of the states for evidence of extreme pain to the inmate. Lethal injection is viewed to be the most humane. However, botched executions are way more common than you might think. So much so that multiple states had to put in place a moratorium until they could learn how to fix it. Lethal injections involve multiple drugs to be intravenously administered. However, doctors are not allowed to administer these drugs due to their Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. So untrained professionals are left to put in the IVs. Sometimes veins are missed, punctured, or collapsed, and this could lead to the drugs being released into surrounding tissues as opposed to the bloodstream, which causes extreme pain. A coroner was asked to examine many executed bodies, and autopsies proved that these lethal injections in general seem to cause the body to experience abnormalities that are most likely causing unknowing agony. For this reason, many drug companies refuse to sell their drugs for the use of executions. There was multiple states, and I want to say maybe it was Oklahoma, where they no longer had access to the drugs that they were using for lethal injection. So they had to stop the executions until they can find a drug to use. But companies were like, no. That happens fairly. That happened Mm -hmm. fairly recently, right? Like Mm -hmm. within the last couple of years. I remember that. The fifth argument is that the death penalty is extremely costly and that money could go towards better things such as better programs to rehabilitate inmates, more staffing and security measures to keep prison guards safe, programs to keep people away from crime, or just simply taking less taxpayers' money to house and care for a death row inmate. A death penalty case costs almost twice as much as a case facing a life sentence. Because the weight of the death penalty is so high, the trial usually ends up being longer, there is a need for more professionals to be involved, and there are lengthy appeal processes. A death penalty case usually costs an average of about $1.2 million. And then to house a prisoner on death row costs about $90,000 more a year than someone serving life. That is because they are not kept in a general population housing, but rather in isolation with more security. And seeing as how majority of people on death row are there for decades and usually die of natural causes before being executed, it would have been much cheaper to house them as a person serving a life sentence instead. When talking about how much money the death penalty has cost them, New Jersey Police Chief James Abbott said, Give a law enforcement professional like me that $250 million and I'll show you how to reduce crime. The death penalty is nowhere on my list. The sixth argument is that it doesn't always bring the closure or relief that families of victims thought it would bring. 
So I was reluctant to even use this as an argumentative point because again, everyone grieves differently and it's hard to try to lump a group of people together when it comes to human emotions, but I am including it only because there are activists who have had their family members murder executed and they felt worse after, and they are trying to spread awareness to their own experience. There's an essay written that Sister Helen contributed to and it's called Not In My Name. Nine people talk about their experience with a death penalty after a loved one was murdered, and it was a very interesting read. As just a couple of examples, Bob Curley describes how after his 10-year-old son was murdered, he was on a crusade to vouch for the death penalty. But after he learned that the person who was less responsible for his son's death was the actual person to get the death penalty and received a harsher sentence than the actual murderer of his son, he realized that the criminal justice system isn't actually fair and is flawed, and he then dedicated his life to oppose the death penalty. And another woman, Miss Gale, whose daughter was murdered, states, The district attorney assured me that the execution of the man responsible for Catherine's murder would help me heal. And for many years, I believed him. Now I know that having someone murdered by the government will not heal my pain. I beg the government not to kill in my name, and more importantly, not to tarnish the memory of my daughter with another senseless killing. A University of Minnesota study found that just 2.5% of victims' family members reported achieving closure as a result of capital punishment, while 20.1% said the execution did not help them heal. Another study published in the Marquette Law Review found that family members in homicide cases in which the death penalty was not an option were actually physically, psychologically, and behaviorally more healthy during the proceedings and expressed greater satisfaction with the legal system than family members in death penalty cases. So the last argument I'm going to talk about is the fact that the death penalty, along with the criminal justice system in general, can be racially and socioeconomically discriminatory. There's a famous quote saying that you will never find a rich person on death row because majority of people on death row cannot afford top of the line lawyers. Not to say that public defenders are bad, but they are not given the resources needed to be able to properly defend someone, which costs a lot of money on top of they usually don't have that much experience sometimes. Uh, Getting professionals to take the stand on your behalf costs money. Investigating the case costs money. Doing experiments costs money. And I read one lawyer on a capital punishment case say that the amount of money given to him to investigate the case wasn't even enough to cover the cost of one medical examiner. And many times, the lawyers assigned to capital cases have never done one before. They don't have the proper experience. And it shows. Um, This reminds me of the Julius Jones case again. His lawyer, he had two lawyers. Neither of them, one had just graduated law school like she had just passed the bar exam and his other main lawyer had never done a capital case before Mm -hmm. he had never like served on anything to help with capital case so he admitted that he was grossly unqualified and unprepared for that case and we know how that case Mm -hmm. ended up how fair can the criminal justice system be if your conviction and sentence relies heavily on the lawyer you had and how much money they are allotted to spend on defending you What's more, out of the 10 poorest states in the United States as of today, eight of them have the death penalty. Out of the 10 richest states, only two of them have the death penalty. Majority of the states that have the death penalty, they're living in poverty, majority. Mm-hmm. 
Sister Helen is quoted as saying, the death penalty is fundamentally a poor person's issue. Over nearly 40 years of visiting death row facilities across the United States, I have never met a single person with money or resources. Capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment. Mm -hmm. And the racial aspect. You can say that systemic racism doesn't exist in the criminal justice system all you want, but you have to understand that historically, a lot of laws and processes were created when enslavement and racism were basically legal. And it's extremely difficult to get rid of aspects to law that were founded on racism, no matter what your intentions are. So let's look at the facts on that. Black people make up 13% of the U.S. population, but they make up 50% of the death row inmates. That does not mean that black people commit more heinous crimes or even that they commit more crimes in general, but it shows the disparities in the criminal justice system. In 1990, the United States General Accounting Office released a report regarding the death penalty. It stated that, quote, in 82% of the studies reviewed, race of the victim was found to influence the likelihood of being charged with capital murder or receiving the death penalty, i.e., those who murdered whites were found more likely to be sentenced to death than those who murdered blacks. As an example, since 1976, when looking at people executed for interracial murders, 21 of them were white defendants who murdered black victims, but 297 of them were black defendants who killed white victims. So 21 compared to the 297. The Women Donors Network found that 95% of the elected prosecutors in the United States are white, and one-third of the death penalty states there was not a single elected prosecutor who came from a minority group. Professor Catherine Beckett of the University of Washington found that jurors were 4.5 times more likely to impose a capital punishment sentence on a defendant who was black compared to a white defendant in a similar circumstance in an examination of 285 cases. All that said, it's been clearly proven that racial and socioeconomic bias does exist in the criminal justice system, a system that is allowed to kill people as punishment a system that has historically been able to encourage public lynching of enslaved people, a system that has, in fact, sent innocent people to prison. So to close out my cons list, I wanted to quote one of my favorite lawyers and social justice activists, Brian Stevenson. He states, The question we need to ask about the death penalty in America is not whether someone deserves to die for a crime. It's whether we deserve the right to kill. Right. So on to the opinions. And I know we've probably sprinkled our opinions throughout this whole thing. But with that, with all that said, after my weeks of research and having conversations with my friends and family, this is my final opinion. I believe that we should abolish the death penalty. Maybe. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> to be honest, listen, <laughs> to be honest. I don't think I can ever be 100% certain of my feelings on this topic only because it's impossible to know how I'll feel if I was put in the situation to make that kind of decision. If someone hurt my child or husband, I can't tell you what I would definitively want. But also if the option wasn't there, then it wouldn't be an issue to begin with. <laughs> so that opinion is only based on the fact that we still have it and we have it in our, it's in California. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't on the table at all, then I don't think I would have an issue on it. So I think I would be 100% at that time. But I can say I'm about 90% sure that I'm against the death penalty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the 10% is re reserved for the unknown of what it feels like to be in the family's shoes. And also, I don't want to ever tell a victim's family member how they should feel or want. 
I don't want to diminish that or invalidate that. So as an example, if the mother of a murder child ever tells me they want the death penalty, I won't argue that. Um, they are entitled to feel that way and I can sympathize with that. But this is why I am the other 90% of me is against it. And I say 90%, but I'm really like almost at 100%. It's mostly because I don't want to make any family member of a victim feel that their feelings aren't valid. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the fact that innocent people go to prison is almost reason enough for me completely. Um, the idea that innocent people could and have been executed in the name of justice doesn't seem worth it at all. The fact that poverty and race play a huge part in whether or not someone is faced with a death penalty is also something I can accept as true justice. It's not a fair system, and to make a decision on someone's life that is so final that you can't ever take back once it's done doesn't seem humane or constitutional. I also think it's a little unfair that DAs get to pick and choose which cases they want to try as a death penalty case. I read an article about a parent whose child was murdered um, who wasn't considered for a death penalty sentence, and they felt as though maybe their child was not as important as another child who had been murdered in their same county who just so happened to be of a different race, and that murderer was thrown the death penalty. So I can see that too. If we just got rid of the death penalty altogether, we wouldn't have to worry about any of that. Mm -hmm. So since each state and even each county, for that fact, um, has discretion to use the death penalty or not, doesn't seem fair to me as the punishment isn't fairly handed out across the board. And if we were to abolish the death penalty altogether in the country and not even have it as an option for anyone... It not only levels the playing field, but families no longer have to worry about whether their case matters enough to be considered for the death penalty. Or families who oppose the death penalty don't have to fight the government about it. Or that the death of another human being, no matter the justification, isn't on anyone else's hands. And we can avoid ever executing an innocent person in the name of revenge justice. So as I started writing this, I had said I was 90-10, but then as I just finished reading this out loud, I think I'm 100% against it. <laughs> what a roller coaster. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for helping me. And that's it for the day. Um, no, reading it all. So it's one thing to do all the research and to type out my whole thing. But reading it out loud and the more that I say, I can't justify wanting it. Even if I was a family member of a victim, the fact that things can go wrong just for having the death penalty available yeah. I, I don't feel like it's worth it. I don't want to keep the death penalty around just so that in case one of my family members is murdered, I can give them the death penalty. Like no innocent person is worth the revenge or the justice or whatever you want to call it, the closure or closing a chapter. I don't care what you want to call it. But having that option is not worth innocent lives. The risk of having it available. Yes, the yeah. risk of all these things we just mentioned the racism that we've seen happen in cases because of it, the innocent people, the everything just doesn't seem worth having that option. And not even, not even everyone has that option. Right. Even if you're in the state that has that option, you still don't always have that option. So why do we still have it around? It just seems too final. What is your opinion? I think, I think a lot of things. I, I, I'm opposed to it. I can say you know, I can say I'm opposed to the death penalty. And I also think that we need to realize that, like, if the death penalty wasn't around mm -hmm. and wasn't an option, there would be other bargaining chips. It's not like suddenly you don't have anything to bargain with because the prison system can adapt and you can, and there's 
different luxuries, quote unquote, that Mm -hmm. are given to prisoners. And Mm -hmm. so I think that there's a lot of things that you could still bargain with Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with someone that you think might have committed a murder to say, hey, like, you know, you're going to jail, but like if you go to jail, you can have this, this and this, Mm -hmm. or, you know, you won't have this if you, whatever. Yeah, I I think that there's a lot of bargaining chips that you could still play with. And so I think that the idea of like, well, if you take it away, we won't be able to find out all these things. I just, I, I don't think that's true. I think that there's still ways to find out information. And I just don't like the idea that there's so much risk associated to Mm -hmm. having the death penalty Mm -hmm. because we've already seen, I mean, how many episodes haven't we done? I don't know what number we're at, but like every episode we've talked, we've done Mm -hmm. has talked about someone who has gone to prison wrongfully convicted and so if there's that many people going to jail who don't deserve to be there or who shouldn't be there and Mm -hmm. how many we haven't even touched on the many people who are in jail for small infractions right who shouldn't be there right now right so it's just it's so hard to me knowing how flawed our system is Mm -hmm. to say you know i understand that our system is flawed but we should still have this very finite punishment available to certain people because it is only certain people. I yes. mean, the statistics are there. People of color disproportionately affected by laws, mm-hmm. by our prison system, by the death penalty. So I just think it, there's too much potential for error yes. in, in the death penalty. And that's not to say that I can't sympathize with someone who has had family members who have mm-hmm. been murdered. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really hard thing to have to live through and to have to deal with. Yeah. But I do think that the guilt of knowing that there are other people who are innocent being killed, it's just too much for Mm -hmm. me to bear on top of having to deal with a family member who has been Mm -hmm. murdered. I just, I would want the right person to be held accountable for it. Yeah. And I just don't think that with the system the way it is right now, we can really say that like the right people are being held accountable. Yeah. We can't 100%. And there's been so many cases, and this is recently actually with one of the federal executions, uh, Dustin Higgs. Are you familiar with that case? So he was one of the last ones executed, I believe. And so his case is really interesting because, and I might do a whole episode on this, so I won't get into too much detail. But when his execution took place, originally, so he wasn't the actual killer. He's not the gunman. Uh I, I believe he was in the car with the murderer and they someone else killed them but originally they had said like oh dustin like made him do it and so then now the other guy who actually killed them is like no he didn't make me do anything like yeah he was there but he didn't force me to do anything but either way whether he told him to do it or not he wasn't the person who Who pulled pulled the trigger he's not the actual murderer yet he was punished worse than the actual person who killed it. And that's exactly what this guy was saying that I talked yeah. to you about where his 10-year-old son was murdered and the person who also was there, but not culpable, but he was there. He just, he didn't stop it. He was sentenced to death. And the person who actually killed his son wasn't. Yeah. And this happens so many times. I feel like, yeah, you're right. Like that, that happens all the time. And you also see a lot of victim families advocating mm-hmm. against the death penalty mm-hmm. because for whatever reason, some of it is religious reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't think that that's right for, for them to be responsible for taking someone else's life. Right. But you do see them kind of like understanding that them going and being put to death will close anything, will bring their person back, mm-hmm. will offer any kind of like 
closure to the hurt, the pain that they're feeling, that pain's never going to way going to go away, regardless of whether that person's killed or not. Like, yeah. and I think that it's possible for victims' families to also understand that the death penalty isn't the answer. Mm-hmm. So if they can understand that, mm-hmm. we we can. Yeah, it was really interesting. I asked my father, John. <laughs> He's a, our friend that's a chaplain in the military. I asked him what his opinion was on the death penalty and not just from a religious standpoint, just like in general, like as a, as a person, as a human being, what's your opinion? And I love what he said. And I'm not going to quote it exactly because I don't remember it. <laughs> I can say generally, he said something like, why would I want the government to make this type of decision on my behalf right. at one of my most vulnerable moments? Mm-hmm. And so in the moment, you know, why would the government kill someone for, I mean, in quotes, for him to make him feel better when he's in an an emotional state, very vulnerable. And then after we see these families, like that one lady that I had quoted, she said, you know, they told me this is going to make me feel better. And they did it. And And I don't feel better. It feel worse. Exactly. And it's true. Now you're carrying guilt, too, Mm -hmm. on top of carrying pain and, you know, grief you're now having to also grieve and feel guilt for someone who killed your you know like you don't want to have to feel guilty about the person who hurt you yeah but you end up feeling guilty and it's like i shouldn't have to feel this way like yeah i can't remember what documentary it was but i watched some show where someone was put to death and one of the family members of the victim met with the family of the murderer and that person who was put to death had children, had mm-hmm. other family members. And that lady felt so bad because they lost someone too. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, I know what it feels like to lose someone. And now because, you know, we wanted the death penalty or whatever, now this whole other family has to grieve. So mm-hmm. now we have two grieving families and nothing's changed. Yeah. So that was really interesting because she met one of the children of, of the murderer mm-hmm. and they like hugged and they cried and she it, she felt worse. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we have a better um, opinion because I feel like we always lean towards this side. Yeah. We always have. But we were always kind of like, meh. You know, there there was a fence that we were kind of unsure to cross. But I, I feel confident enough to cross that 100% now. So I didn't really want to choose an Amplify Corner or a call to action because I wanted this to be more of an unbiased, reflective episode and not force my opinions on anyone. But if I had to do a call to action, I would say, whatever side you're on, you can join in the efforts of activists fighting for what you believe in to help change legislature. There's a ton of resources out there and a ton of groups to join or donate to in every state. So looking forward to the future, according to President Joe Biden's campaign website, he has pledged to end the death penalty. He states, Because we cannot ensure we get death penalty cases right every time, I will work to pass legislation to eliminate the death penalty at the federal level and incentivize states to follow the federal government's example. So we'll see where that goes. Um, We're we're very new into this new presidency and administration, Um, but Biden has already signed a number of executive orders and seems to be moving pretty swiftly with his promises. So we'll see where the death penalty lands on that one. That's all I have for today. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. No, it was a lot. I hope it wasn't boring. Um, I just felt it was so important for myself, mostly actually. Maybe it's a little selfish, but especially with all the federal executions going on, 
it was weighing really heavily on me. Mm -hmm. And so when Dustin Higgs, when his case was coming up, I was on my phone all day because we were, you know, hoping for a stay. We were hoping and I want to say he got it and then was like overturned. I don't know what happened. Um, But it was crazy to see like minute by minute how things were unfolding. And then when I, I was actually doing this case, I was writing this out Mm -hmm. when, when he was executed. And so I was on my computer writing about the death penalty. And then I saw on my phone, Dustin Higgs was executed at so-and-so time. And I was like, ugh, like it felt like, I don't know him. Yeah. And I don't know the case in detail. I just know that he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger. But at the same time, it just felt wrong. Um, it was, it was really sad. It felt really heavy. And then I went on to continue writing this death penalty episode. I also think that in recent years, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have come to understand and to really like accept the fact that these things can happen to anyone, mm-hmm. you know, with cell phone footage, um, you know, all of the things that we've been seeing, mm-hmm. it, it's, it just makes everything so much more real. Whereas yeah. I think, you know, growing up, this wasn't so much at the, not that it wasn't at the forefront, but maybe it just wasn't we didn't have the proof like mm-hmm. right in our faces all Constantly. the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we've come to accept the fact that these things can happen to literally anyone. Yes, there are a lot of bad people who mm-hmm. do bad things, but that there but there is also a lot of people who fall into bad situations and bad circumstances who end up in even worse situations yeah. and get put through really awful things. And so seeing something like this like Higgs right Mm -hmm. I don't know the whole story but you know I I feel like it's very easy to believe that it just might have been wrong place wrong time wrong people and he didn't pull the trigger and sure he was there but he wasn't the one that did it and Mm -hmm. the person who actually pulled the trigger isn't going to be executed Mm -hmm. yet he was Mm -hmm. it's just so hard and I think that makes it easier for people like us who might not know these these people or who might not know anyone who's been in the situation to sympathize and empathize Mm -hmm. with their situation and make it easier for us to say definitively like we are opposed to death penalty because we understand that this can happen to anyone Mm -hmm. and if that's the case it can happen to anyone in my family and I don't want to have to be in that situation where you know like I'm having to fight for their life Mm -hmm. I'm okay with them suffering in prison or I'm okay with them serving their punishment and serving their time in jail. But I don't think that I would be okay with just having to fight for something like that. It was a heavy topic. I wish you all well in figuring (laughs) out where you land on the spectrum of pro or anti. But I hope that I was able to at least give a little bit of information that you hadn't known before, or if you hadn't completely made up your mind that maybe this kind of pointed you in the direction that you want to be in. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Please rate and review. Follow us on social media, Unjustly Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next week. I don't even know what stuff is bringing. She doesn't know. Oh, man. I have no idea what's coming. (laughs) I'm sure it's exciting. So we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Um, It was a very exhausting topic to I wanted to get through this fast. (laughs) And I want to add that we're one of the only Western, westernized democratic state. Hmm. No. I want to add that we're the, one of the only, I want to add that we're one of, stop. The Supreme Court had decided 
girlfriend sorry <laughs> i was like fuck <laughs> my leg just did like a reflex thing in it. oh i hit it with my boobs <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> i'm glad to know they're still there no. cliche arguments that are not true what are you doing can you hear that yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's like what breaking. project are you working on over there <laughs> it was like breaking and every time i would like touch my screen i would feel like the glass coming oh. up so i was just like i just need to take that off already <laughs> right now sorry <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you could. to help change legislature legislature to help change legislature <laughs>